I'm going to read the quote from Lenin that was in the book, in our version of the book. Page 19. This is from Lenin at the end of 1919. The quote, With the greatest interest and with never slackening attention, I, Lenin, read John Reed's book, Ten Days That Shook the World. Unreservedly do I recommend this book to the workers of the world. Here is a book which I should like to see published in millions of copies and translated into all the languages. It gives a truthful, a most vivid exposition of the events so significant to the comprehension and understanding of what really is a proletarian revolution and what is the dictatorship of the proletariat. These problems are widely discussed, but before one can accept or reject these ideas, one must understand the full significance of John Reed's decision to write this book to help clear the question, which is the fundamental problem of the international labor movement. Nikolai Lenin, end of 1919. That alone should make all of us who consider ourselves followers of Lenin to read this book. Actually, it's an endorsement by Comrade Lenin of this book. I'm now going to go to the book itself. I'm going to go to the preface, which was written by John Reed himself. These are his words, not mine. This book is a slice of intensified history. History as I, John Reed, saw it. It does not pretend to be anything else but a detailed account of the November Revolution when the Bolsheviki, he called them Bolsheviki at the time, at the head of the workers and soldiers seized state power in Russia and placed it into the hands of the Soviets. Naturally, most of, of it, this book, deals with Petrograd, which we called Red Petrograd, the capital and the heart of the insurrection. But the reader must realize that what took place in Petrograd in those years was almost exactly duplicated with greater or lesser intensity throughout the whole country. In this book, the first of several which I am going to write, I must confine myself to a chronicle, a list of those events which I myself observed and I myself experienced and those supported by reliable evidence, preceded by two chapters briefly outlining the background and the cause of the November Revolution. I am aware that these two chapters make difficult reading, but they are essential to an understanding of what transpires. Many questions will suggest themselves to the mind of the reader. What is Bolshevikism? Question mark. 
What kind of a governmental structure did the Bolsheviks set up? Question mark. If the Bolsheviks championed the Constituent Assembly before the November Revolution, why did they disperse it by force of arms after? And if the bourgeoisie opposed the Constituent Assembly until the danger of Bolshevikism became apparent, why did they champion it afterwards? In considering the rise of the Bolshevik movement, it is necessary to understand that Russian economic life and the Russian army at the time was not disorganized on November 7, 1917. But many months before, as the logical result of a process which began as far back as 1915, the corrupt reactionaries in control of the Tsar's court, the aristocracy, deliberately undertook to wreck Russia, to destroy it, in order to make a separate peace treaty with Germany. The lack of arms on the front, which had caused a great retreat in the summer of 1915. The lack of food in the army and in the cities. The breakdown of manufacturing and transportation in 1916. All these we know now were part of a gigantic campaign of sabotage. This was halted just in time by the March Revolution. That was the revolution by Kerensky and the Social Democrats, the so-called moderate socialists. For the first few months of the new regime, in spite of the confusion upon a great revolution, 160 million of the world's most oppressed people, that's what he calls them, suddenly achieved liberty, both the internal situation in the country and the combative power of the army actually improved. But the honeymoon was short. The property classes wanted merely a political revolution. This is very important, comrades. Which would take the power from the czar and give it to the property classes. They wanted Russia to be a constitutional republic, like they had in France or in the United States at the time, or a constitutional monarchy like they had in England. But on the other hand, the masses of people, they wanted real change, real industrial and agrarian democracy. In a book called Russia's Message by William English Walling, W-A-L-L-I-N-G, an account of the 1905 revolution, which, comrades, was the first revolution, describes very well the state of mind of the Russian workers, who were later to support Bolshevikism almost unanimously. Working people saw it was possible that even under a free government, if it fell into the hands of other social classes, that the 
working people might still continue to starve. The Russian workman is revolutionary, but he is neither violent, dogmatic, nor unintelligent. He is ready for the barricades, but he has studied them. And alone of the workers of the whole world, the Russian worker has learned about them from actual experience. He is ready and willing to fight his oppressor, the capitalist class, to a finish. But he does not ignore the existence of other classes. The Russian worker merely asks that the other classes take one side or the other in a bitter struggle and conflict that will be coming near. This is a very interesting. The workers were all agreed that our, the American political institutions, were preferable to their own. But they were not very anxious to exchange one despot for another. In other words, exchange the czar for rule by the capitalist class. Between these two extremes, one extreme being the, the moderates, the Kerensky people, and the other, the followers of the czar, between these two extremes, with the other factions which wholly or half-heartedly supported them, were the so-called moderate socialists, the Mensheviks. These groups were also attacked by the property classes, but their power of resistance was crippled by their theories. Roughly, the Mensheviks believed that Russia was not economically ripe for a social revolution, that only a political revolution was possible. According to this interpretation, the Russian masses will not educate it enough to take over power by themselves. Any attempt to do so would inevitably bring on a reaction by means of which some ruthless opportunist might restore the old Tsarist regime. And so it followed that when the Kerensky moderate socialists were forced to assume power in March of 1917, they were afraid to use that power. From this, it was an easy step. The moderate socialists needed the capitalists, but the capitalists did not need the moderate socialists. So it resulted in the socialist ministers being obliged to give way, little by little, on their entire program while the property classes grew more and more insistent on their program. This is, remember, this is written in 1919, January 1st, that Reed is writing this. It is still fashionable after a whole year of the Soviet government to speak of the Bolshevik insurrection as a, quote, adventure. Adventure it was, and one of the most marvelous mankind ever embarked upon, sweeping into history at the head of the toiling masses and staking everything on their vast and simple desires, 
Already the machinery had been set up which the land of the great estates could be distributed among the peasants. The factory shop committees and the trade unions were there to put into operation real workers' councils and control of industry. In every village I've been to, in town and city, district and provinces there, were Soviets set up a workers' soldiers and peasants deputies prepared to assume the task of local administration no matter what one thinks of bolshevikism it is undeniable that the russian revolution is one of the great events of human history and the rise of the bolshevik a phenomenon of worldwide importance just as historians search the records for the smallest details of the story of the Paris Commune, so in the future they will want to know what happened in Petrograd in November 1917. The spirit which animated the people and how the leaders looked, how they talked, and how they acted. It is with this in view that I am writing this book. In the struggle, my sympathies are not neutral, but in telling the story of those great days, I have tried to see events with the eye of a conscious reporter, interested in setting down the truth. And I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to ask for anybody who wants to raise questions. My question is made up of two parts. The November dictatorship of the proletariat of 1917 is referred to world history as the Great October Socialist Revolution. So, first of all, could you tell us why that is the case? And the second part is that, given the current political crisis in the United States, do you see any parallels between the Kerensky government and the Bernie Sanders phenomenon in North America? Glad you said that. I saw a semblance a semblance, closeness with what we've been going through for the past few years in this country, the role of the moderate socialists now coming into war, the people that follow the DSA, people that follow Bernie, so-called moderate socialists. I see a similarity between their view and what they're trying to do, reforms, a political revolution, as John Reed says, not N.O.T., a social revolution where the dictatorship of the proletariat would replace the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, which we have now. So, yes, I do see similarities with that. I do, comrade. I'll also answer first question about why John Reed called it the November Revolution instead of the October Revolution. That's because Russia was still using a different calendar. The Julian and the Georgian calendar were different. Fun fact, in 1912, the Russian Empire actually yeah. came two weeks late to the Olympics. So, yeah, that's been an issue. And that's why it's called, in Russia, the Great October Socialist Revolution and not November Revolution. Anyway, my comment is, is I can just see in John Reed's writing the revolutionary fervor that he's getting from this. Because from what I know about John Reed, he was hanging out with other journalists and big-time trade union activists in America, but also a lot of anarchists, like Emma Goldman, stuff like that. And you look what happened, the Bolshevik revolution started, and it 
what was it, 1919 or 1920 in America that the Communist Party was founded. And it just started a wave where the Third Communist International and the Communist Parties around the world were founded. And it needed a revolutionary fervor that didn't die until the end of the 20th century. And I feel is even coming back now in, in the early 21st century. Uh, that's all. Thank you. So I just wanted to clarify a couple points before we moved on. The uh, Mensheviks, are they kind of going on that Marxist route, how there needs to be a bourgeoisie class to help build up the capital because Russia was a peasant state at the time, largely peasant population, not a lot of an industrial workers educated, and I think that they alluded to that. So my first question is, were the Mensheviks trying to follow it as Marx? described it. And then the second question is, so the Bolsheviks, are they operating on a distinct path to communism through what's like a Russian identity? Are they trying to get to communism in their own way and kind of breaking away from how Marx described it? Yeah, good question. That's a good question. It's very deep thinking on your part. I don't believe that even entered the idea of the Leninist. I am convinced that the Leninist properly analyzed the situation and that they, unlike the Mensheviks, the Leninists, the Bolsheviks, wanted to help the people immediately. Land, peace, end of the war, bread. Whereas I think the Mensheviks were a different mindset. I think they were more of the intellectuals. And they used Marxian ideology, but to a certain extent, not to the extent that the Leninists did. The Leninists were the ones who contributed the idea of imperialism and the idea of a, not just imperialism, but how they were going to go forward. That's my understanding, that the Mensheviks were much more oriented towards an intellectual understanding of Marx, and the Bolsheviks were much more involved with the masses of people. If anybody wants to give a different view... Yeah, so I'm actually reading another book right now that goes into a lot of what that question was talking about. It's, it's simply called The Russian Revolution. And John Reed's book is much more of sort of a romantic narrative and lots of imagery and stuff like that. But this other book is a lot more about the actual parties themselves. And what's important to note, your question was about the Mensheviks, is that throughout the book and before October at the Revolution, the Mensheviks are constantly siding with essentially what are the aristocratic elements within the Duma. And the Mensheviks were constantly opposed to the Bolsheviks' direct call for action, and they performed in ways that the working class and the people in Russia, and, or Petrograd more specifically, vehemently despised. And so the Soviet of Peasant and Worker Deputies, which was essentially the countervailing balance of power to the quote-unquote formal provisional government, quote-unquote, essentially overtook the duties of serving the people because it was more responsive to their needs, even though it wasn't recognized as a formal authority. So my point is that the Mensheviks constantly capitulated to the more right-wing forces within the government, and they constantly allied with the social revolutionaries to push down and to veto Bolshevik amendments to proposals and things like that. That's all I wanted to add. Yeah, by the way, comrade, you're correct according to this book. I didn't go into it right now, but we'll go into it hopefully later. That's exactly what Reed said, exactly what you said, capitulation of the Mensheviks, etc. Yes, I just wanted to expand on the question of did the Mensheviks follow more of an orthodox Marxian economic line, and to my knowledge, they did. Karl Marx stated that the productive forces under capitalism, I mean, it can exist up to 200 years before you transition into socialism, and Frederick Engels went on to say that essentially capitalism has to be so far off 
that it has continuously overproduction before you can even go into socialism. So to my understanding, the Mensheviks followed this orthodox line of building up the productive forces. And then, of course, the Bolsheviks, along with Lenin, came up with the state capitalist new economic policy to bypass that. So to my understanding, they did follow that line. So I guess two parts. I'm wondering, first definition, I don't fully understand what the distinction between a social revolution and a political revolution being possible. And then I'm also kind of curious about things like the five-year plan, how that squares with this idea of going through economic development like Western Europe. I mean, I thought that was kind of what Lenin was trying to do, pass through a quasi-pseudo-state of capitalist production in order to build the economic forces. Okay, I can answer the first question easy. I think the best way to call a political revolution, in my opinion, it's very similar to a war of national liberation like Vietnam had, or the United States had in 1776, or the countries in Africa. A political revolution had to be changed. The dynamics of a country coming out of a period of dependency, either on foreign interests. For example, Russia was in a war with Germany in World War I. A political revolution would have put people in office who ended that war, and everything else in Russia would have stayed the same. That's an example of a political revolution. A social revolution will change the dynamics between the classes. So where in a society you have the ruling class, basically property owners, and other forms of capitalist forces, and what we call a revolution that would change that, that would be a social revolution, changing the dynamics between the social classes. That's my understanding. The second question you raised, does anybody else would like to answer the second question? See, uh, five-year plan is just a structure for a planned economy over a course of five years. It's very common in Lenin estates to have a five-year economic plan. And the new economic policy was just the synthesizing of capitalism uh, under the care of the Communist Party, proletarian-led Communist Party. So how that does answer my question, but I, I'm still curious, how is Lenin's model then different from what the Mensheviks were proposing? Well, basically, Mensheviks did not say that the working class should be put in power. They did not call for a dictatorship of the proletariat. In fact, in the book, it says... I don't know if I even read it yet, that the Mensheviks needed the capitalists, but the capitalists did not need the Mensheviks. Oh, here it is on page 7. It says the moderate socialists, the Mensheviks, needed the bourgeoisie, but the bourgeoisie did not need the Mensheviks. So it resulted in the Menshevik ministers being obliged to give way, little by little, on their entire program to give it up to the, uh, while the property classes, the bourgeoisie, grew more and more insistent on holding on to their place in society. I think that basically says the difference. Lenin said, no, 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 none of that. He called for the dictatorship uh, of the proletariat. Can I just put a, a nice little bow on the end of this? Yeah, and then we got to go on. All I was going to say is that uh, the key difference is what Angelo said, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Under the guidance and the dictatorship of the working class does 
limited capital uh, bourgeoisie and petite bourgeoisie allowed to exist under the new economic system. It's as opposed to the Mensheviks, where the ruling class would still be the bourgeoisie. That's all. Thank you. Just a quick question. So John Reed mentioned the necessity of a political revolution as opposed to a social revolution as we've gone over passable questions. One of the reasons he cited being because of education and a risk of reactionary forces taking over. Do you feel that applies today because of the U.S. propaganda machine, not because of education, but because of how the U.S. government has been able to obfuscate not only our history, but how the capitalist class suppresses the workers? I think your question you're asking, how in Lenin's time, is there a similar situation here? Is that what you're saying? I'm losing the question. I'm asking how this applies. I'm asking how Lenin observed that there was a need for a political revolution due to education of the populace, how that would apply here, not due to education, but because of propaganda and the working class not having the kind of guidance necessary. Let me just say, the first thing about Marx we have to understand is not just the existence, but to deal with the idea of a class struggle. That was not really discussed in society before that time. There were peasant revolutions in Germany in the earlier years, but it was looked at as a country versus city thing, never understood as class consciousness or the class struggle. Now, you cannot have a class struggle if there's no class consciousness. And in this country, as communists, our main job through the trade union movement and through other formations is to give a spotlight on the idea that there is a class consciousness and we have to understand who we are and who we're not. The idea that we're all equal and that we just individually pick up our bootstraps and if we don't, we're lazy or whatever is not what Marx is talking about and not what we're talking about as communists and followers of Marx and Lenin. Our job is to explain there's such a thing as us and them. This crap that the middle class is used as a term to actually make the working class think they can get out of their situation by becoming middle class. So all they need is a little more money and now they'll be middle class. Of course, that's not the definition of middle class, but that's what society is pushing. So the big struggle is class consciousness. And I think once you have class consciousness, even on a basic level of us and them, you're able to have a uh, revolution. That's all. And we're going to go on back to this now. On page 27, chapter 1, the background. This is Reed talking about his interview with a person of the higher class. Towards the end of September 1917, a professor of sociology who was visiting Russia from another country came to see me in Petrograd. He had been informed by other businessmen and intellectuals that the revolution was slowing down. The professor wrote an article about it and then traveled around Russia visiting factory towns and peasant communities where, to his astonishment, the revolution seemed to be speeding up. Among the wage earners and the land-working people, it was common to hear talk of, quote, all land to the peasants, 
all factories to the workers. If the professor had visited the front where the fighting was going on with the Germans, he would have heard the whole army talking about peace. The professor was puzzled, and he need not have been puzzled. Both observations were correct. The property-owning classes were becoming more conservative. The masses of the people were becoming more radical. And I think that paragraph says a lot. There was a feeling among businessmen and the intelligentsia generally that the revolution had gone too far and it lasted too long and that things should stop and settle down. This sentiment was shared by the Mensheviks and another group called Social Revolutionaries, the SRs, who supported the Kerensky Provisional Government. To the multi-form discontent of the people, on page 27, the so-called moderate socialists had one answer. Now, I think this is comparable to our country. Now, listen to the answer of the liberals. Wait for the Constituent Assembly, which is going to be meeting in December. But the masses were not satisfied with that answer. The Constituent Assembly was all well and good, but there were certain definite things for which the Russian Revolution had been initially made, and for which the revolutionary martyrs rotted in their stark brotherhood grave on Mars Field. That must be achieved, constituent assembly or no constituent assembly. Peace, land, and workers' control of industry. The constituent assembly had been postponed and postponed and postponed and would probably be postponed again until the people were calm enough perhaps to modify their demands. In other words, they were hoping that people would become acquiescent and not keep up a revolutionary fervor for their demands. At any rate, here were eight months of the revolution that has gone, and little enough to show for it. Meanwhile, the soldiers began to solve the question of peace by themselves. How? By simply deserting. I urge you to get the movie Dr. Zhivago, based on a book by Pasternak. I think his first name was Boris. A middle-class doctor who lived in that period, a real story, and he has a scene in that movie that was made showing the soldiers deserting the front line in droves. The peasants burned manor houses, and they took over the great estates. The workers sabotaged, and they struck. Of course, as was natural, the manufacturers, the capitalists, the landowners, and the army officer class exerted all their influence against any democratic compromise. So here he goes into the whole list, and I'm not going to continue it, of the division between the two. Listen to this on page 30. On October 15th, now remember, he's a reporter, I had a conversation 
with a great Russian capitalist. That's his words. And he gives you the name. It's not important. Known as the Russian Rockefeller. Everybody here should know Rockefeller was a big capitalist at the time this book was written. This Russian capitalist said, revolution is a sickness. Sooner or later, the foreign powers, foreign powers, England, France, must intervene here in Russia as one would intervene to cure a sick child and teach that child how to walk. Of course, it would be more or less improper, but the nations must realize, this is this capitalist talking, the danger of Bolshevikism in their own country as a contagious idea of proletarian dictatorship, that was the quote, and that the world was going to a social revolution. This is a chance that this intervention may not be necessary. Transportation in the country now is demoralized. The factories are closing down. Listen to these words. And the Germans are advancing. Starvation and defeat may bring Russian people to their senses, end quote. My answer to that is that a degeneration of society economically and socially may also bring the Russian people to a different kind of sense that they would need a social revolution. And the rich guy doesn't say that. A large section of the property class, this is John Reed talking, preferred, listen to this, that the Germans would win the war. they rather have the Germans than the revolution. And they didn't hesitate to say so. In the Russian household where I lived, the subject of conversation at the dinner table was almost invariable the coming of the Germans. Why? Because they would bring law and order. <clears throat> That's the quote. One evening I spent at the house of a Moscow merchant, in other words, a capitalist. During tea, we asked the 11 people at the table whether they preferred the German Wilhelm, Wilhelm or the Bolsheviki. The vote was 10 to 1 for the German Wilhelm. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Showing the nationalism of the capitalist class and the property class was not to their country, but to their class. That's what they were worried about, if their class was interests were going to be attacked. Not that the country was going to be attacked. The speculators, you know what they are, people associated with banks, took advantage of the universal disorganization to pile up their own personal fortunes and to spend their fortunes in fantastic revelry or the corruption of the government to give to government officials. Foodstuffs, fuel were hoarded or secretly sent out of the country to Sweden. Right away I thought of Venezuela last year. The property class in Venezuela were doing that to the foods. They were hoarding the food and they were hoarding the fuel and they were sending it out of the country. This was all in the New York Times at the time, the bourgeois media. In the first four months, 
of the revolution. For example, the reserve food supplies were almost openly looted from the great city warehouses in Petrograd. Until the two-year provision of grain had fallen to less than enough to feed the city for one month. So in other words, comrades, this is a script, a tactic that the property class uses whenever they see their social place in their society threatened, like they did in Venezuela, as I said, and as what happened here. In the provincial town, John Reed is talking, I knew a merchant family who had turned speculator. The Russians called it bandits. The three sons had bribed their way out of the military. One gambled in foodstuffs. Another sold illegal gold from the mines to mysterious parties in Finland. The third son owned a controlling interest in a chocolate factory, which supplied the local cooperative societies on condition that the cooperatives furnished him with everything he would need. And so, while the masses of the people got a quarter of a pound of black bread on their table that night, the the capitalists had an abundance of white bread, sugar, tea, candy, cake, and butter. Yet when the soldiers at the front could no longer fight because they were cold, hunger, starvation, how indignantly did this family scream, cowards, cowards? Right away, I thought of Trump. You all remember what Trump said about people in the military. Last night, I saw a movie made in 1980 called Patton, General Patton from World War II. It's the same script, comrades. He was calling his own soldiers cowards because they refused to die on the front. So I see similarities. Not the names have changed, but the mentality seems to be the same, whether they're Americans or Russians or any nationality. When finally the Bolsheviki found and requisitioned vast hoarded stores of provisions, guess what the capitalists called the Bolsheviki? Robbers. What happened in Venezuela last year? The government came into the warehouses that were owned by the capitalists. They opened it up. They gave the food stuff to the Venezuelan people. So now I'm going to stop it there and go for a round robin of anything we read tonight. And I think the question at the beginning of tonight's class, is there any similarities? And I'm saying as I'm reading the book, yes. My question is really quick. I'm relatively new to John Reed. I'd heard of this book prior, but I was curious um, to what the extent Reed was involved in the communist movement prior to the event mentioned in this book and what his involvement was like after. My understanding is his involvement, his trip, and his involvement in reporting made him get more active in the movement in this country. But it was simultaneous because at the second point of his life, he was involved with building the party here. He was summoned to Moscow to the Comintern with Sinoviev. Sinoviev had been the leader of the Comintern at the time. And he had a spot in the agitprop in the party worldwide. And so, therefore, he was called there, and he tried to get the group in this country 
to affiliate with the Comintern, but there was another Communist Party here. So Stalin said, go back and form one party, and then we'll bring the one party into the Comintern. So I think it was simultaneously. He was involved in both. Thank you. Comrades, I wanted to add a couple things. I just recommend to anyone that if you want to learn more about um, the October Revolution, that it's very important to study the events that took place between February and October, and not just what happened in October, because what happened in October is very much shaped and molded by the events preceding it. And I just wanted to read a very, very short thing uh, regarding that quote. Everything happened so simply and so naturally. It was all quite unlike any of the revolutionary scenes we knew from history. In some ways, it was like the changing of the guard. And I think that is a good summation of, and that, that was from the Russian Revolution, that this book is more focused on the actual history as opposed to a romantic telling. But it's just very important to know the events before October. That's just, I want to stress that to people. Yeah, I remember we were talking about the idea of a social revolution versus a political revolution. And I wanted to bring up something that Marx wrote about in, I believe it was 1852. It's called Address to the Central Committee of the Communist League. And he talks of this. He actually calls it a permanent revolution, which was later distorted by Trotsky, of course. But he describes it as first a bourgeois revolution that's supported by the workers and peasants. And that's the political revolution. And then to make an uninterrupted revolution into the social one, where it would be a socialist revolution. So I like that John Reed recognized that. He used those two words right there. And like I said, that's the actual definition of permanent revolution right there. Yeah, Comrades, really interesting class as always. Just wanted to point out too that under the direction of Comrade Stalin, about 10 years later after the writing of this book, um, he commissioned a film to be made with Sergei Eisenstein by the same name, October, 10 Days That Shift the World. You can find it for free on YouTube. It's got a lot of the same uh, revolutionary fervor and a soundtrack by Shostakovich. So really great. I would recommend to check it out. Thanks. I thought that what the capitalist that he interviewed that kind of talked about the bourgeoisie solidarity and especially the threat that it posed to Western powers kind of lays the stage for the Allied intervention. I'm not sure if most people know about this, but the United States, Great Britain, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Greece, and Japan all launched anti-Bolshevik invasions of the Soviet Union by Archangel and down, obviously, in the Black Sea and also over in Japan. But I thought it was interesting, kind of laid the stages for that. So it was interesting to hear him talk about that bourgeoisie solidarity over state solidarity. So I read this book a couple months back, and I thoroughly enjoyed listening to it from the uh, moments we hear about them uh, storming the Winter Palace and all the humorous stuff that went on in there, to even the fuel that they held for all the comments that fell during the initial stages of the resolution. I would have to John Reed is a most excellent writer and an excellent romantic uh, literaturist to read. I also have to point out, just as a minor spoiler, that... Uh, Comrade Stalin isn't exactly mentioned too much in the book, if I recall, it's only two times. And I find that combining this work, uh, and even though he's a reactionary historian, does good research on Stalin himself, his contribution to that, to Grover Furrier's work on Stalin, and combining all that together to gain an inkling of what all of the uh, comrades are doing at a time beyond just John Reed's own work. This amazing class is the book I've always wanted to get into. I do enjoy reading reporting on the Mensheviks and the socialist 
revolutionaries and all the other people who were getting into the revolution. There's so many parallels between what goes on over here, all the people who call for change and yet give up at the first sign of even a pushback. And I also find it very fascinating the way he's talking about the workers, that even if you read a history book now, they still talk about these Russian workers as starving peasants who live in crumbling mud huts in the dead of winter, and they have no idea what's going on. But in fact, they're actually very smart and intelligent and know more about what's going on than leaders and whatnot. It's why we're here to try to reach these workers here and educate them in our own way. That if the workers are educated and they know what's going on, then there's no force that can stop them. So thank you all. So I wanted to give a little bit more of a explanation for the economic policy. Because Reed mentions that in the Civil War and even before then, people were very hungry. There's not a lot of food. The rich ordered most of the good food. And so during the Civil War, it was really destructive on the cities, on the industrial centers. And because of that, it caused a lot of people to flee the cities for the countryside to seek food from the peasants. And one of the prevailing discussions at the time was what to do about it, because it was one of the more serious problems as it was undermining the class basis of the new society. And there was two thoughts on it, two predominant thoughts, which was on Lenin's side, he wanted to devise a system that was persuasive, but Trotsky, on the other hand, wanted to regiment rigid discipline with the trade unions and to force the workers to go back to work. And so the new economic policy was a method of encouraging exchange from the rural countryside to the city. That was one of the primary reasons for the policy. It was, I know the, the discussion around it is on building capitalism, but the primary reason for it was on reclassing the workers who were leaving in the millions from the city centers. And I had one thing to notice, just uh, not anarchists in their belief that, that bourgeoisie will just kind of lay down and go away, is this was brought up with, you know, class solidarity of the bourgeoisie. They definitely have no reason to ever go away. So I'll make this quick. I know uh, I made this comment, and I just wanted to uh, reiterate about what is happening now. We talked about the bourgeois hoarding. Well, it turns out, I'm sure many people know here, but maybe some don't, that when we had that CARES Act, that that was used as a humongous bailout for the capitalists, including, including the cruise lines, the airplane industries, and all sorts of boondoggles. So they were bailed out, and plus many of them took that money, bought their own shares back so that they would get their nice little compensation packages. And so you need to understand, too, this comes from Chris Hedges, who was a war correspondent for 20 years, and he's very upset about the system right now. But basically what the capitalists are doing is just depleting our treasury through the CARES Act, and there's a nice $454 million or billion slush fund for extras, which can be allocated out. So this is what's happening now, and it's just like with the boarding of the bourgeois during the uh, revolution here. Just wanted to let you know that there are similarities today of what's going on. Thanks. Really great class. I just wanted to know if when they talked about the the Russian state or like the under the Tsar regime, was that, I know Angelo brought up the comparison to Venezuela, so were they hoarding food in a sort of sanction type of like thing? Was it a kind of sanction type of action? 
No, the native capitalist, this is common knowledge, according to the bourgeois media, CNN, the native capitalists were hoarding food. There was nothing on the shelves. They were then reporting that the people were starving because socialism doesn't work. That was the reporting that came out to the West, to the rest of us in the world. But it was because the native capitalists, in other words, Venezuela, unlike the Soviet Union, allowed, allows for private industry. And this is the danger. The means of production and the news media were in private hands. And Russia did not do that. So I want to thank everybody for coming, and we can adjourn. Thank you.